I'm Heidi White. I'm Tim McIntosh. You're not Heidi White. I'm not Heidi White. My Heidi, how you've changed. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just Tim and I today. Heidi is on a trip and... Um, Although she often is able to join us while she travels, this week she couldn't. So Tim and I are holding down the fort. We're going to be discussing uh, the cha- chapters nine and ten of part two of 1984. Um, so I, 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 I have a theory. I don't think this episode is going to go as long uh, because it's just <laughs> the two of us. But then also because of the section itself, um, we I think we'll have to hold some things back until we finish the book next week. And then dig in. So we'll talk about what we can for this week. And then I think next week, we'll, it'll be a free-for-all for the three of <laughs> A three-for-all. Yeah. <laughs> um, a three-for-all. And then uh, uh, do the Q&A episode after that. And then we're going to do um, an episode on A Raisin in the Sun, the Lorraine Hansberry. It's Lorraine Hansberry, right? The play? Yes, that's right. And then after that, we're going to dig in. Uh, Tim's going to go off on his, uh, his vacation from Close to Reads while he prepares to get married and all that. And we're going to do... Uh, we're going to do Test of the Durbervilles with Karen Swallow Pryor as our very special guest. So we'll have a schedule for that posted here in the next couple of weeks. Before we dig in, don't forget about uh, Substack, Close Reads HQ. It's closereads.substack.com. We've got bonus content there, written content, as well as bonus episodes. And uh, for $8 a month, you can get access to all of that. Uh, or you can be a founding member and pay like a couple hundred, I think it's a couple hundred dollars for the whole year. And when you do that, it's helpful. It helps us... Um, make the show happen. It helps, you know, helps us each get a little bit of money, get some little bit of money over to, to Logan helps us pay for some of the fees and all the things that go into making the show. So when you do that, it's, uh, it's mutually beneficial. We hope, hopefully you're getting some good content that you enjoy and it helps us just kind of keep going on with this. So, um, thank you for, for the people who have been doing that, uh, Facebook group, of course, you can join the conversation over there and uh, we'll have a Q&A in a couple of weeks. So that's a great place to post questions. If you ever need to get in touch, you can email me at david at goldberrybooks.com. Uh, Tim, let's let's talk about the plays of the thing real quick because you guys are, uh, you've been discussing Henry the Fourth part one. Is that correct? We have. We have finished those discussions with the exception of our Q&A. When Heidi gets back from her vacation, we'll record the Q&A episode. Um, a couple of episodes coming up, I'm going to discuss with my friend, Josiah Martins, um, the HBO Max series Station Eleven. So those of you who don't know about the book Station Eleven, it's the story of a kind of a virus that knocks out a huge majority of the world's population and kind of decimates the technology that, you know, we kind of take for granted every day. And it's the story of a traveling troupe of Shakespeare actors that go around performing at these kind of human outposts that have occurred after this huge global pandemic. It was written at least two, if not more years before COVID yeah. Emily arrived. St. Saint, Saint John Mandel. Mandel. St. John Mandel, whatever it is. And um, I read it during COVID and it was just, I mean, it's like the perfect book for me, a traveling <laughs> troupe of Shakespeare actors during, you know, post pandemic. I was like, this couldn't be better. Yeah, and okay. I just think it's a yeah. really good book regardless. Yeah, it's, it's a great book and she's a great author. She's got a new book coming out um, in, on April 5th and it's called Sea of Tranquility. And I actually just shared the book cover of that as our book cover of the month over on Close Reads HQ. Side, that's oh, nice. just a side, a side thing though. What was it like reading that book during the pandemic? Were you reading it like early on in COVID or, you know? I think it was right in the middle of COVID. My friend Lisa Beth recommended it to me and I had never heard of it. And I, okay. I think I ordered the Audible. Okay. And I remember 
you know, really early on, there's a performance of King Lear and the lead actor. So this is a spoiler word. Skip the next 30 seconds. The lead actor drops dead in the middle of the performance. And that's, and he just has a heart attack. Yeah, it's like it's, really early not, in the book though, right? Yeah, really so early in the like book. it's not like a spoiler. It's kind of the setup. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the setup. Um, but after that heart attack, um, there start being these reports of this huge pandemic happening. And that's what happens. Anyway, um, it's a wonderful book. HBO Max made a series out of it. My friend Josiah saw the series before reading the book. I read the book before th- seeing the series. And we just want to get together and just talk about that. And as I have long promised and I'm still preparing for, I'm going to do a kind of an overview of who Shakespeare was, a kind of a biography slash um, assessment of what are his chief concerns as a writer and what makes him so great. That will be coming up during the next couple of weeks also. Nice. On the I, I assume you're going to get deep into the authorship question. I will touch on the authorship question because I have to. I actually don't take that discussion about whether or not Shakespeare was Shakespeare. Yeah. I don't think it's a very serious question. I, I welcome, I you know, someone to kind of convince me that it is a serious question, but I don't so think, you it's, don't think it's Francis Bacon. Yeah, or, or Queen Elizabeth no, herself. I don't think it's, no, I don't think it's Queen Elizabeth. No, I think it was William <laughs> Shakespeare wrote the works of William Shakespeare. Um, the, the, I mean, that's one of those debates is like fun to have sort of, but it's also like, as you said, maybe not that serious. Um, it, it's better to have yeah. that debate with a sense of humor than it is to do it very earnestly the way some people do. <laughs> I think so. I think you're right. Hey, can I plug one other thing before yeah, we start? Of course. Is I it your am wedding? Recording for my wedding. I'm. Rec- I, I want to plug for my wedding. No, <laughs> I um. Next month in April, I am going to record a five episode series for Classical U on kind of the the way that I like to teach Shakespeare to young people who are nice. Um, either learning to act for the first time or who are bored insufferably by having to read Shakespeare. And I don't know how quickly it will take us to turn those episodes around, but we'll record them in April and hopefully within the next few months, people who are interested in kind of learning a different way to teach Shakespeare other than sit down at your desk, students, and let's read parts. That will be an opportunity for people to learn kind of a different method. Nice. So you going up to Harrisburg? I'm going up to Harrisburg. Yeah. Nice. They're they're taking good care of me. Nice. Speaking of being taken good care of, 1984. Hmm. Question mark. <laughs> this is an interesting section. So let's kind of di- let's dig into it. Let's let's talk about what we can, and then we'll yeah. save. You know, we, we got to save some of the things for for Heidi. You know, we can't take all the Agreed. the good bits of conversation. You can't address all the questions without Heidi. And and this is one of those books, as with a lot of books, but I think especially this book, it's hard to talk about stuff until the end. So at the uh-huh. end of part two here, we're left with a cliffhanger where Julia, they, they've been turned on and or trapped or however you want to put it. And Julia's been yeah. whisked off and he realizes, he says, I, I've, I saw a member of the thought police. That's how it ends. But before that, chapter nine is this really interesting section where we're basically getting 
long excerpts from this book that the Brotherhood has published. Mm-hmm. And he reads two chapters of that. One of them he reads aloud to Julia. And, and I kept thinking, when Orville wrote that, mm-hmm. how, are we, how are we supposed to read those sections? Mm-hmm. Are we supposed to read those as the worldview, the philosophy, the sort of perspective that the book and Orwell himself view as the right perspective? Or is it supposed to be more complex than that? How, how do you read those sections? You know, and it's long. It's not, you know, we're talking 50 pages, essentially. Longest of a chapters fake book. of the book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not a fake book, but you know what I mean. The book within right. the book. Right. I, David, I was asking myself this question as I read it. I mean, I don't, you know, I've read this book a couple or a few times before. Mm-hmm. And I, to be honest, I totally, I forgot how long this <laughs> yeah. section yeah. was. Yeah. And I also Same. forgot, like, how exactly, to your point, to read it um, because part of it is, so it's this long discursus by Goldstein, the kind of shadowy enemy of big brother. Mm-hmm. And it comes to us through this book comes to us through a kind of dubious source. The guy that I'm sorry, what's his name now? Um, oh, the guy Ryan? that Winston thinks is, yeah. O'Brien delivers in some way covertly this book to Winston and Winston begins to read it. And it's hard because it's kind of the book that he's reading is kind of an admixture of history. Mm -hmm. This is how big brother came to power. And it's a history uh, or it's kind of like a statement of the philosophy of how this totalitarian state functions. And it's also kind of, it's a discursus in a history of the other two nations that Oceania is in conflict with. And so it's really difficult to understand, like, how are we supposed to read it? And critics don't really care for this section of the book. Um, if there's any complaint about 1984, this is the part that that receives the, like the sharpest criticism, and I think rightly so. Yeah, for a couple of different reasons, it loses the dramatic tension of the book. The yeah. book has been that's, for me and that's really tense, right? Yeah, when the book steps away from the dramatic tension and turns into like, you know, he's reading Thomas Hobbes or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then yeah. it, it kind of yeah, you lose that momentum, you lose that sense that like energy or the sense of like what's at stake right? for them as individuals. right? It, it does get into really interesting questions about like political philosophy and what is a society and what is how to preserve culture and how to destroy a culture and all those kinds of things. But it does so in a way that feels like you're reading Thomas Hobbes or Machiavelli or Charles Taylor or something. Yeah, right. And Heidegger. also, <laughs> Heidegger, how are we supposed to take, is this Orwell advocating for yeah. a different viewpoint or is this just a fictional character Goldstein mm-hmm. advocating for you know something that doesn't exist and contradistinction to big brother i don't know the answer to that question it's hard and then you like so then you can see, like i was trying to step back from it and say okay i don't i don't know the answer to that question either so then can i read it within like the context of Winston and Julia themselves. 
like the work, like, is it here because it's doing some kind of work on them mm. or is it here because he wants to make a point? And that's the trouble that I'm having. And I, and I think that it's not clear. We, we can come back to this at the end of the book, I suppose, but it's not clear why these chapters are here. I think is another way of, of what I'm of, of putting yeah. it. Is it about how our characters are evolving and changing and responding to outside forces and all that kind of stuff? Or is it a bit of historical political philosophy? Is it, is it nonfiction in the middle of a fiction book that's trying to make a point, you know? Yeah. And, and, and like, do you, do you find the point that it's trying to make compelling enough to be worth being here? Even if we kind of say it's the worst, it's the weakest part of the book. Is it still compelling enough as a set of arguments or a sort of like um, historical case study of a particular uh-huh. sort of fictionalized world that it's compelling enough to be here or, or, or no? I'm going to say no. I, it, it, but I still have a question. My question is, what was its original purpose? And I think yeah. what its original purpose was to unmask Big Brother to Winston and to a lesser degree, Julia. But when, when I read the kind of unmasking of Big Brother, it feels like we already know this. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, right. and then at the end, he's like, at the end of the section, he's like, it was, it's really great to have confirmed what I already knew. And so as readers, yeah. we're like, yeah, we already knew it too. Right. You've been telling, okay. you've been revealing, you've been showing us instead of telling us. And now you went back and just spent 50 pages telling us. Right. So here's my question for you, David. Is the reason that it feels like we already knew this because we have in some way, we know enough about that history, like the history, let's say, of the Soviet Union? Mm, mm. It's like outside of the book. Outside of the book. And thus it's familiar to us. And there's like so many movies, you know, placed in, you know, Eastern Bloc, Soviet Union. And and books. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it doesn't feel like an unmasking to us. It feels like, well, yeah, this is the way that the Soviet Union functioned. Or is it familiar to us for the same reason that it's familiar to Winston? We've covered Mm. this ground in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you think it's the the latter. You think it's like, we've already covered this ground. It's hard to separate. That's one of those things where as a reader... It's hard to separate our own knowledge of the universe. (laughs) I'm using the universe broadly because then it applies more generally to all kinds of things we read. Um, And I think maybe the problem is that like in 1949, when Orwell wrote the book, he was trying to put, he was, he was trying to emphasize something that we know more clearly now because we've seen those movies and read those books and, and had the history told to us and things that were hidden behind propaganda in 1949 have been revealed to us in 2022. And mm-hmm. so for us, it's more the repetition that we've been given is more stark, whereas, or more, more felt. Whereas maybe when you read it in 1952 or when he was trying to write it in 49, he wasn't entirely sure that that was going to come across. The only thing I would say about that though, is he spends a lot of time, not just revealing like the negative aspects of living in that world, but getting into like political philosophy, like the nature of oligarchy. Yeah. For example, that's the thing that kind of makes me think he is. But then on the other hand, if you're trying to write a, try to compelling political treatise, the writer of such a thing would get into things like the nature of oligarchy. Yeah. So it's tricky, but then maybe you just didn't need it, you know? 
So can I give a shot about why I think he might? Yeah. This yeah. might be Orwell actually writing an a kind of an advocacy piece in the middle of mm. his book. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Orwell was a democratic socialist. Like that was his own particular conviction. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there are moments in the treatise that we read in this book by Goldstein that it reads like, okay, this is actually Orwell kind of like showing an alternative to mm. totalitarianism. But I think he has to kind of get into the weeds of political philosophy a little bit because at this time, there's a little bit in the, I think in the public view, there is a sense that socialism and communism, eh, they're not that different. And uh, for Orwell yeah. personally, he's like, what are you talking about? They are, <laughs> a, they're really different. Yeah. But that requires, hmm. I, I mean, this is, I want to be really clear, speculation on my part. I think, um, <laughs> To be a socialist, you have to agree with what the what, with the basic critique that Marx actually presents that we are living in that capitalism is dominated by a class warfare of the wealthy owners of production and the people who work for those wealthy owners of production. Like I, my suspicion is that Orwell is going to say that is a problem that any political system must address and capitalism doesn't address it well enough. Thus I'm a democratic socialist. And so what I wonder is if he is getting into the nitty gritty on political philosophy, because he wants to say, look, I'm not advocating for like strict capitalism. I'm adv advocating for something called democratic socialism and democratic socialism is not the communism that is got the iron bars around Siberia and Russia <laughs> yeah. right now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, you like, if you look at Orwell's Wikipedia page, it says on there, you like when I went to go look at the first episode to get his birth dates and all that kind of stuff. It says something like he's, he was uh, a writer of polemical journalism yeah. and, you know, he, he, he wrote a lot of like his nonfiction is, is really good. Um, mm -hmm. Even if you don't agree with some of his conclusions or even some of the premises, yeah. he was an incredible journalist Yeah, and, uh, and his journalism is what led to him to write fiction. And so on the one hand, maybe it's like he couldn't help himself, but drop his chief concerns in the middle of this novel and we can argue about whether or not it actually detracts from the sort of drama of like from the effect of novelization. Mm. But it's pretty clear that he's able, he's managing to craft an argument out of this book. And so what I'm wondering is we're talking about whether it kind of like diminishes the drama of the book, but we talk a lot on this show about how, and Heidi especially talks about this, like you have to read a book on its own terms, right? We talk mm -hmm. about that a lot. Mm -hmm. So is this an example of where, we can look at this book and say, well, based on the terms of a novel, this is a flaw in the novel. It's still a great book, but this is a flaw. And so how do we, how do we respond to that flaw? Or is this something where we have to say, this is the book telling us what kind of book it is. And so we have to accept that and then judge it on those terms. Yeah. Which of those two 
um, questions would you sort of think that maybe we should lean towards? Now, I've never asked you this before, so you have to think about this on the fly. Uh, Right. Just curious what you think about that. So the choices, just to say them back to you, are one, this section is a flaw, or two, this section may not like really resonate the way that the rest of the book does, but it's important because it's telling us how it wants to be read. Yeah. Yeah. And if we could say, if it's a flaw, like maybe it's a, it's flawed dramatically. And then the question becomes, if that's the case, how do we respond to that? Do we just, do we move on? Do we ignore it? Like, you know, it, just because it's a flaw doesn't mean the book is bad. Great books still right. have, have yeah, this. Right, right, we right, can right. tell quibbles with them. Yeah. And who are we to judge anyway? But that's the point of this conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Crime and Punishment, one of my favorite books of all time. It's got problems. I mean, right. it's got problems, you know. Yeah, the Lord and of the Rings it, it, has, pro- you know, things that yeah, I can probably. Right, right. Um, so for me, it's a flaw. It's it's not just the book telling us how it wants to be read. But I want to give this caveat. Okay. I think that the flaw might be because we're reading it in 2022. We're not reading it in 1947. Hmm. In other words, like my hermeneutical vision has been shaped by the last 75 years of Western history. Mm -hmm. And because I know so much about kind of the history of politics in the 20th century, this section just reads to me as like repetitive and just, yeah, like it robs the dramatic thrust of the book. It dulls the dramatic thrust of the book. So that would be my best guess is that it's a flaw, but it's a sort of flaw that is the easiest of flaws to forgive, which is history has impacted me so much that it's rendered a part of the book Mm. moot. Yeah. Like you can't hold up against the passage of time. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. So what do you think? What do you think about that question? Well, I think, I think it's probably a flaw. Um, but in the sense that like, I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that it's kind of a flaw because the book had already earned that. Like it had already earned the presentation of the problems that it thinks that it needs to continue to lay out. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Like Mm -hmm. within the context of the drama of the first, you know, all the chapters leading up to this, we'd gotten a lot of what he tried to reveal to us in this section and he could have, um, I think introducing the book is a really, you know, the Goldstein's book is a really interesting there's a lot of narrative potential by introducing this like forbidden tome. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. banned book. And I think that it's kind of, he diminishes that by going over things he's already gone over before. But what you were just saying reminded me of something that I was thinking about when I was reading, because while I'm interested like in political philosophy, you're even more interested, but more than that, you're like, you've read more of it. I mean, yeah. if, if for no other reason than just that you're a little older than me and you've had more time and you taught it in like, you, you know, all, all those sorts of, you know, books of political philosophy and these great thinkers who, for me, I'm like interested, but still learning so much. And so I was wondering, is for me, I was reading it and I like, it would raise a bunch of questions and, or it would cause me to think, okay, that's like something I've, I've read before, but it also kind of felt like at times it was going over my head and at other times mm. it was just like. Yeah, everybody, anybody who's interested in political philosophy at all knows that, you know? Yeah. Um, but then I was wondering for you, is your interest in political philosophy hampering, like is your knowledge of it hampering your reading of this or is it enlightening your reading of this, you know? And I was curious oh, yeah. how, how that was working for you. But it sounds like 
for you, it was like, it wasn't, it, it, it kind of hampered the, the reading of it. I think it, in some ways it hampered it, in some ways it enlightened it. I'll tell you about the way that it enlightened it. Um, so having read Marx, Marx basically oh, You're begins, a communist, huh? Uh, yeah, right. You opened um, the cover of that book? <laughs> and I converted. <laughs> Marx just operates the action, basically saying, there's only two classes. There's the overlords and the underlings. You know, there's the bourgeoisie, you know, the, the, the wealthy, mm. the owners mm-hmm. of the means of production, and then there's the proletariat, and that's all there is. Okay, Orwell, through Goldstein's mouth, introduces a third group, which is something like the middle class, you know? And so right there, that was really interesting to me because he's basically breaking with Marxist ideology by introducing a middle class, which kind of complicates the whole Marxist dialectic. I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Now, part of the ways in which knowing a little bit about 20th century political philosophy like wasn't terrible. It like kind of it dampened my enthusiasm for the book is that <laughs> when Goldstein is telling the history of what happened kind of after the 1940s, Orwell, of course, is like making up a history because he was writing this book in the 1940s. He doesn't know what's going to happen after, you know, this book is published. And that's the part that like, oh, it just goes in a very, very different direction than what Orwell wrote in this book. I do not think that Orwell was writing prophecy. He, I'm sure, was not saying, this is going to happen. I I don't think he was doing that at all. He was creating a fictional world in which three huge galactic, you know, superpowers all adopt the same basic stratagem of rule. And thus they have a perpetual state of war to kind of keep their subjects in line. Mm. That's, that's, I, that's not, I don't think Orwell predicting the future, even like speculating about the future. He's just kind of imagining what would happen if this happened. Speaking of, well, you know, in the first episode, we kind of debated about whether what we're seeing in this book was happening here. Yeah. Like was that what we saw in the book is happening in in our time now at all. And I got to thinking about how, like, maybe there's a distinction that we should have made or that I didn't make clearly enough um, that I saw in this section and for me, it's less about the, like the government being a totalitarian government and more about seeing little, little slivers in culture itself, little breaking points in culture itself and the way the average people interacts with the average, the average person interacts with the average person or way people interact with government. Less like that the government is going to be some, be some, some, some kind of authoritarian regime mm. that we get in this book. But like, it's the things like the way technology is so ever present and like, you can be, you're constantly being watched and you're like almost volunteering to do that, you know, to be yeah. watched. Yeah. And, and in a way that that's, that's kind of what I see now going on or like that I fear in our mm-hmm. world now is that we're kind of like abandoning ourselves to the ever presence of technology. You know, I'm like, for me, the, the greatest technology ever is like the book, right? <laughs> yeah. So like I, while I'm not a Luddite by any means, the, the amount that we kind of give ourselves over to technology is a little scary. And like then the way that we interact with each other within technology. And I see like, I keep seeing things in the book that speak to that anxiety that I have about culture now, about our culture right now. And when, and like, for me, that doesn't, that actually makes the book, the drama of the book 
more powerful. Like, mm. because being able to, to recognize something that I have an anxiety about, even if it's like, let's just say it's an unjustified anxiety for the sake of conversation. Or like, let's say that I was like, oh yeah, our government's a totalitarian government. Like that yeah. for me, like you could say that that actually heightens the, your reading of the book. Like it can heighten the drama of the book and make the book better because you're feeling what Winston is feeling. Yeah. So I was thinking about how, like, I, we probably should have, I probably should have made more of a distinction of that when we were talking about that a couple of weeks ago. But, but to, to your point, I just want to recount a, a conversation that I had. I'm going to blur some of the names and lines just so we don't get political. But one of my, an older friend of mine was very concerned that the government was collecting data from us and they didn't want to take a certain, they wanted to take a certain precaution so the government didn't collect data on them. And I mentioned this to another friend of mine and that friend of mine said, and I bet she sent that information to you via a cell phone that is collecting all of her data right, all the time, not right. for the government. I mean, I think the government could lay hands on it, but for right. like a large corporation and I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think, so that that's where for me it's like you were giving up we're voluntarily we are opting in to give up a lot of our information and that makes it like it 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 get, it makes it easier should someone want to be authoritarian to to be come so um that was kind of like I don't we don't need to rehash our conversation from the first episode yeah, yeah. but it was interesting the like when I started thinking about that and how like that can impact the drama of the book like how you how we, what your experience reading the book is can be impacted by how much of it you yeah. feel applies to you. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, you read Pride and Prejudice and there's like, you're going to have a different experience reading it. If you've ever had like a fraught relationship with someone you ended up le- loving or, you know, however yeah. you want to yeah. put it, um, you know, you, on the other hand, you can also read a Western, even if you've never ra- ridden a horse before. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so for you, like, how do you, I want to, like how how do you think about the actual drama of this book? So uh-huh. we're talking about like the philosophy of the book, but as we get to the end of this section, all of a sudden we've had that, like a quick turn here. Julia's mm-hmm. gone and he's been like scooped up, and so presumably, yeah. I mean, no pun, no um, I don't want to reveal anything, but yeah. presumably we're about to have the kind of primary action of the book hit us. But yeah. so far, the action has been ebbing and flowing really. The drama has been ebbing and flowing very dramatically. Yeah, yeah. So how how do you think about the drama? Like as a storyteller to this point? I see, I, this is part of the reason that I think that the book works so well is that for me, the kind of omnipresence of Big Brother and the haunting villainy of Big Brother is everywhere in this book. You know, it's, mm-hmm. what does Goldstein say in his book? Big Brother doesn't exist. You know, it's, yeah. it's just kind of like a, an embodied stand-in for this whole state, this whole s- system of domination. And I think that Orwell, this is one of the things that I like the most about this book. I think that Orwell does a great job of just creating this sense of doom where the enemy is both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And so... The fear that 
Winston has and that Julia has of being found out. I feel that constantly throughout this book until they're found out. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, like it's, and it's not like someone just busts in the door. It's that before they bust in the door, they talk back to them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, that was a great move. Yeah. You know, that, that's a yeah, nice. because it's their minds that are being monitored. That's the really scary, pernicious thing. Mm-hmm. It's not just their bodies. Their bodies are being ruled also, but the kind of like political worm has gotten so deep into their skulls that it almost feels like their thoughts are being read, you know? Yeah. And then to what we were just saying though, the, the thing that Orwell does that's so interesting is he's sort of like, he creates this gray area between when it's technology and mm. when it's like the sort of like amorphous evil orb blob that seems yeah. to be watching you. Right. Like, so there's the telescreens and all these things, but then, how are they actually hearing and like, when are they hearing and how are they talking back? And sometimes he makes it clear how that's happening. And sometimes he doesn't. And that actually, that like heightens that sense of doom because you don't, as readers, we don't know like the mechanism by which they're always being watched. Right. And it's like, they don't either. Yeah. Yeah. They have to go all the way out at their first meeting out into this field in the middle of nowhere. And that doesn't even feel safe. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the birds could be watching. Yeah, the, the birds could be watching. By the way, this is like a little bit of a um, discursus. Have you heard about birds aren't real? Yeah, yes. Yeah, you know about like, this? Yeah, the, the birds are like drones or spies or something like on wires. Yeah, there's this kind of like fictional story made up. In these, I don't know, maybe these, it's real. Maybe it's real, Tim. Maybe it is real. But <laughs> maybe birds aren't real. The story is that these guys are just kind of like, man, people are becoming like so nervous about everything, so wary that, you know, someone is spying on them that they concocted this whole story that the government, I think during the Nixon administration, replaced half the bird populations, half the bird population with robotic spy bots covered in feathers. And that's what like robots were. I mean, that's what birds were. And now they've been totally actually... 100% of the bird population has been taken over by these robots and you're constantly being spied upon. And they kind of like trying to play this out like on, on the today show, not the today show, but like on local news, they're like really advocating for this. We have to get rid of the birds. And it it just kind of made me laugh. So what I, there's a, I have a lot of, uh, a lot of bird books in my store Mm -hmm. and I'm going to need to read them from that perspective. (laughs) Like really just think about how that would, how the, like how migrations and like, Uh Uh, the hatching of like eggs. Like there's just Uh a lot of extinctions. There's a lot of stuff that I need to like think through how this would apply. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And also, um, well, and also like, do should we have a nice long conversation about chemtrails? Oh, what is the latest with chemtrails? The late, the, I don't know, man. I don't know the latest. I'm not, I gotta be honest. I'm not keeping up with my chemtrail with the latest chemtrail developments, chemtrail theory developments. But, but the fear we, behind chemtrails is what? Well, I think it's that like airplanes are leaving behind, like, and and that is becoming kind of like a a kind of it's creating an, an incubator for the greenhouse effect on the Earth's crust. That's the idea. But is there? Well, I, there I think something... it's more like they're like chemical or biological agents that are being that's left it. behind. Right. Right. So chemtrails, yes or no? Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. Like, 
<laughs> Can you? It's like, possible. Not all laugh. of these things are possible. They're all possible. Yeah. The more, the more. I think one of the things this book get, gets at is like the more we, the more we invest in technology, the more we like put our trust in it, the yeah. more things become possible. And then it's a matter of like, we talked about this last time. Like, what happens when you stop when you stop being human? Mm. Like. When you, when you, when you stop being human, when you stop caring about what it means to be human, the fact that things are possible means that they become right. And I think even with science right now, there's a lot of conversations about there. Like just because we can, does that, doesn't mean we should. Yeah. yeah. This is one of those books that seems to say like, they thought they realized they could. And so they did. Yeah. And then oh, what happened at that point, once you've done yeah. it enough times and once you've done enough things, what happens to the moral order? Like what happens to the, the societal fabric? Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, you know, people become robots. I mean, not literally yeah. robots, but <laughs> birds too. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, you make a great point. <laughs> um, so as we get into the rest of this book, I mean, again, yeah. we'll we'll be able to dig in on some of this stuff. It's you know, can't say too much right now. What are you looking for? I mean, like he says, he's not seen Julia. He doesn't see Julia again at the end of this section. Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems to, you know, he seems to be, you know. In trouble. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. But he's he's got this book. He's read the book, like, and you've read it too. But what should people look out for? What should, what's the like thing you're looking out for? The thing I think that's easiest to lose is that for Orwell, um, I it, it, I think that Orwell is most worried about the loss of history. Mm. I think that the fact that he puts Winston in to a position where he is obliterating history as part of his daily task Mm. um, is not a coincidence. I think this is what Orwell is really, really concerned about. And and it's a little bit easy to lose track of that because Mm. of the threat of Big Brother seems like the threat of force and imprisonment and death is so forefront that it's tempting to say, what's Orwell most concerned about? Um, the thought police. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, he's definitely concerned about the thought police. But the thought police are only possible if you have no oasis called, you know, like real history. Mm. Yeah, that's, that, that makes me think about how like he could, his choice to make Winston sort of in that middle level mm. is really interesting because he could have made a book about the proles, like about a guy who's, in the, who's a member of the proles, like yeah. a sort of, uh, like a Dickensian book or something like that, where they're yeah. like from the ground up there from fermenting revolution and, um, becoming like this unlikely cult war warrior within the culture and yeah. for the survival of humanity and things like that. But he chooses a guy who is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And whose conscience is awakened, mm-hmm. and so he's he's somebody who is actively doing the work of eliminating the history, not just someone who is affected by that. No, he is affected yeah. by it, as everybody is. Yeah, but he he chooses that person who's kind of in the middle and who is awakened to the humanity of the people below him within this cultural order that has right. been established. Yeah, and that that's really interesting. That what you just said kind of made me think about that. That's a it's a it's an interesting dramatic choice because maybe it would have been, would have been a little bit more like Bravehearty. So to speak, Braveheart E, not Brave yeah. Hardy. <laughs> yeah. Brave yeah, Hardy. Yeah. Um, for him to create to create a story built around this, like, <clears throat> you know, the slave boy who becomes Spartacus, right? Yeah, right, right, right. Spartacus for the 20th century. Yeah, exactly. 
but he, but like I don't know that it captures the essence of the point that he's trying to make in this particular book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, by making like the the what do they call it the not the inner party but the the lower the outer party is it just outer party is he a member of the outer party but then like O'Brien is part of the inner party or whatever that like yeah like, um, kind of like the leadership party leadership part of the party yeah I mean. Okay, so whatever he part, he's definitely higher than the proles. <laughs> yeah, and right. he's and he's acting as um, he is acting. He he's still acting on behalf of the party to do their work of eliminating history. Yeah, whatever he's whatever party actually is in, he's still doing that work. And yeah. that's a, you know he starts out not just as someone who's oppressed, but someone who is essentially doing the very thing that Orwell is most concerned about. And mm-hmm. awakening that guy is the mm-hmm. action of like the action of the first half of the book, yeah. the first two thirds, really. I mean, and then now he has been awakened. He's now becoming a member of the oppressed. So now yeah. what happens? Like the story yeah. unfolds, that third act unfolds after his awakening. Yeah. Um, and like that, I think is really nice touch. And I'm just kind of now putting all that together based on what you were just saying. I think for readers going forward, one of the questions to ask, maybe at the end of the book, maybe not while reading the book, is why does Orwell identify history as kind of the antidote to this regime? There's so many things, ways in which the regime is oppressive. So many ways. You know, you could say um, the chief problem that Orwell is concerned with is the effacement of the small daily pleasures of life or of romantic love or of you know, the attending church, or you can come up with like all these different things, but no, it's the elimination of history for him. That's so crucial. And I think yeah. that's one of the questions I think that we, that should be asked at the end of the book. Why given the prescience of his vision and mm-hmm. it is a prescient vision how did this prescient man single in on the loss of history as the kind of key kernel from which everything pernicious grows? Mm. Do you, so we can, we'll talk about, I want to talk about that at the end, but like, just do you have a, do you have a thought on how his interest in democratic socialism might play into that? Like just Mm. in terms of your understanding of the, the sort of political theory of democratic socialism? which again, you know more about than I do. And and maybe you need to think about this. Yeah. I would need to think about that. I I, I think I just want to point out one difference to help kind of articulate what democratic socialism is, is, as I understand it, the chief difference between democratic socialism and just kind of like vanilla garden variety socialism (laughs) is, is who owns the means of production, um, the demos or the state. And I think that Orwell is going to say, not the state, it's the people that should own like the means of production of the economy. Um, Mm. And that, I don't know, that's a pretty sizable distinction in how that would actually manifest itself in an actual real democratic socialist country. I'm not, I, I, I would struggle. I'd have to do a little work to kind of really articulate that well. But and yet, um, democratic socialism was like against the one-party state, though, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you saw in the Soviet Union, or right, whatever. right, 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 for sure. 
for sure. So how does that relate to this kind of um, drive that Orwell has to preserve the reality of history? I, I, I think that's going to be my number one question to ask when I get to the end of this book during this reading. I don't know that I can give a really great answer yeah. to that Yeah. right now. Well, Hopefully I will, but the end of next week. Something to think about. Yeah. So again, yeah. next week we're going to, we're going to finish the book. Now, one of the things that we do, um, that we're going to be, we've done it once. We're going to be picking it up here and there is, is our close rants, um, <laughs> segment on the, over on the close reads HQ. Now, Heidi's not here. Do you think we should do a close read segment where we rant about Heidi or do you think that would be like, <laughs> like not be kosher? I'm trying to think what I would even, do you know what you would rant about no. Heidi about? No, I mean, I? no, I, we could, um, we could rant about how her house always looks clean when we're recording. I know. Okay. I was going to, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, she's graceful in this kind of effortless way. Like maybe it requires a lot of effort and we just don't see it or hear it. But that's something I could really feel hostile about as someone who doesn't feel a lot of kind of like effortless grace in my <laughs> daily life. You know, I see Heidi, I'm like, how do you do this so effortlessly? You're ranting that she takes, the, she takes the time to be effortless, effortlessly great, graceful. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't. Well, I'm, sh- I'm upset at her <laughs> that she makes it look so effortless when it's such a trial for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you should imagine what it feels like for the rest of us hanging out with you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Okay. So before we go, what's the, um, speaking of ranting, what is the, what's been the great success in wedding planning this week? Oh gosh. Um, or trial. we like an hour before this podcast approved our invitations. They're being done. I know they're being done on an old fashioned letter press by my friends, Matt and Erica Hinton. We are thrilled with the design and that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's shouldn't be that big of a victory, but yeah, it just feels great. In wedding planning, everything's a victory, man. Yeah. Right. Just knocking stuff off the list and feeling good about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just working the plan. Nice. Nice. All right, Tim. Um, All right, David. This has been good. Thanks so much. Uh, everybody who uh, wants to participate in the Q&A, we'll, be, we'll do that the week after next, but you can you know, start getting your questions ready. We'll post the thread on Facebook and you can also email me. And again, that's david at goldberrybooks.com. Heidi will be back next week to talk about the end of 1984. Uh, we also have uh, Withy Windows coming back on April 1st. So um, our first guest on that is Katie Camillo, great children's book author. She wrote uh, Because of Winn-Dixie and The Tale of Despero and many others. Um, so that'll be back on April 1st. You can check out the trailer now, wherever you get podcasts and, uh, at the daily poem and bibliography. And of course, Tim's got the plays, the thing going on and uh, be sure to check out those episodes that he was talking about earlier. Closereads.substack.com is where you can get close reads HQ. Uh, and, uh, if you want to join that Facebook group, it's facebook.com slash close reads. So I think that about covers everything. Tim, any final thoughts, any last words? No, I'm great. I'm great. All right. Well, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.